better, better? Are you there? I'm here. Uh, good morning. Again, there I am. I can hear me. Um, first off, I just want to start by saying thank you uh, for your prayers. <clears throat> and I'm going to keep this up here with me because a part of that. Um, the boys are back. They were gone for one week only. Thank you for housing us again um, in our evacuation from the fire, for those of you who might not know. Um, the boys at the ranch, we only have like 10 students right now. We're up to 12. We've taken in a few new students. The because, Like I said, the boys are back. They've been back since just the week after that first evacuation, that only evacuation. Um, things are going okay. We have a really young crew right now, a lot of 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds, a lot of immaturity, like just with that, aside from the typical immaturity of troubled teens. Um, so thank you for your continued prayers there. Uh, the fire is contained on our end. They did a lot of back burning, literally like on our hills, looking out our front window, we could see them popping off their little explosive charges and lighting the underbrush and uh, clearing all of that out. So uh, because of that, when you look online, they're 17% contained or something like that. That's all our end of the fire. So there's really not a lot going on on our end except for smoke. Um, so thank you for your prayers there. And yeah, we had COVID, joined the COVID club um, about three days after the evacuation ended for us while the boys were still gone. Um, I uh, came down with a fever and chills and crazy fatigue and tested positive. Uh, I had five days of fever and misery uh, and then really bad headaches. Um, not a terrible cough, but when I coughed, my headache was splitting, not fun. Lisa got it near the end of my bad fevers and she had fever for like 11 days and uh, a lot of nausea and just misery. It's really not fun. Uh, but we're praising God that we're through it, praising God that we have natural immunities and, um, and uh, you know, it's nothing earth shattering. Um, it's bad, it's a sickness and people die. Um, but God is still God and he's still in control. He is still good knows what he's doing, and I praise him that, that I'm not in his place, because I could not do a better job. Um, and that's what I want you to catch from the sermon this morning. God is good, he's in control, he's worthy of our trust, and he knows what he's doing. We have no reason to fear. The only thing worthy of our fear is God himself, who can destroy both body and soul and Aside from that, we have nothing to fear. And church, you don't have that to fear because of Jesus Christ. You are recipients of his love, his grace, his goodness, his faithful loving kindness, and he holds you secure because of your position in Jesus Christ. So we stand strong. We stand courageous. It doesn't matter what we lose as Americans doesn't matter what fat we get shaved off in our rich luxury because we stand to gain it all in Jesus Christ we stand to inherit a place fellowshipping with the Trinity inheriting the kingdom of God because we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ so we're not going to lose our cool we're not going to quiver in our boots we're going to trust our good God, who is worthy of our trust. And we're going to see Jesus do that this morning. 
and we're going to follow his lead. Now, typically, um, I try really hard to keep the point of my sermons in line with the point of the author. What is the author trying to get at? So my question would be, what is Matthew driving at? And that's how I would shape my sermon. I want my sermon to be about what the author wanted it to be about, not springboarding off to wherever I want to talk about. I try really hard to do that. I am going to highlight that this morning, but I do also want to take a couple steps beyond that. As I said, I want to look at the example that Jesus left us. I don't think that's what Matthew's doing. Matthew's not saying, hey, look, this is how Jesus avoided temptation, how he denied temptation. This is how you you can too. I don't think that's Matthew's driving point. I'll get at Matthew's driving point. I think Matthew's driving point is that he's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. He is saying, Behold your king, the one worthy to establish the kingdom, the one worthy of your worship. And he's been doing that throughout these first four, even five chapters. We're in chapter four, by the way, four, one through 11 is where we're going to be. But Matthew's saying, behold your king, the Messiah, the one here to establish the kingdom of God, which Israel, by the way, repeatedly failed to do. Jesus succeeds and he's establishing his kingdom and he's worthy of your worship. That's what Matthew's driving at. But I do want to step in a little deeper and go ahead and look at, so what did Jesus do? Why does Jesus pass the test? How does he do it? And where is his faith lying? And the answer's obvious, and I've already gotten at it. Um, But that's where that application or takeaway is going to be. Strictly speaking, if I were to not take that step in, the application from this sermon would be, behold your God. Behold your King. And I love stopping right there. We don't do that enough. Many of our passages in scripture, the application is stop and behold your God. He is good. And he is worthy of your praise. And we don't need to ask the question, okay, so what am I supposed to do with this? No, behold your God. That's the point. And that's Matthew's point is he is beautiful. He is worthy. He is good. He's done it. And then I'm just going to uh, take some liberties and step a little So once again, what I'm going to drive at as your application is trust God's plan. We're going to see Jesus trusting God's plan, accepting even the suffering without a spirit of fear, knowing that the glory will come when God so wills it. Accept the suffering in God's plan, waiting for the glory to come when he so wills it. So how are we going to get there? First off, what has Matthew been on about? We're at chapter 4, verse 1. But before that, we have the genealogy, uh, which is Matthew saying, here he is, son of David. Here he is in the line. You know who he is. He goes all the way back to Abraham. He's established his genealogy. This is the king, the rightful king. Um, I want you to answer me a question. Who am I? Who am I? Around the time of my birth, many infants were murdered. I was soon called out of Egypt. I went down into the waters, led by the Spirit, and came back up again, representing a new life. I was led by God into the wilderness. While there, I fasted 40 days and 40 nights. I faced many testings in the wilderness. And upon a mountain, the nature of the kingdom of God was outlined. Who am I? 
Moses or Jesus? Israel or Jesus? Yes, exactly. It's beautiful, right? This is, this is the book of Matthew. Matthew's saying, look, Jesus was born, he was worshipped, yes. But right after that, he runs off to Egypt because a bunch of babies are killed. You are supposed to think of Israel. You are supposed to think of Israel's captivity in Egypt. You are supposed to think of the babies that were killed around the time of Moses. Um, at, at his birth, he was escaping the murder of the infants. And then they're called out of Egypt. Do you know what Israel's called at that time? In that passage, um, when God is confronting Pharaoh and he's saying, I'm calling Israel out of Egypt, he calls him my son. He calls Israel my son. My son I will call out of Egypt. Now Matthew points to that same passage and says that's a prophecy about Jesus being the son called out of Egypt. Jesus wasn't born in Egypt. They fled to Egypt to escape Herod so that, Matthew says, that happened so that God could then call him out of Egypt and it could fulfill the prophecy. Jesus is the son of God that Israel failed to be. You're supposed to see that. That's what Matthew's getting on at. Um, then what's next? Um, Israel going down into the Red Sea has always been a picture of baptism. It was designed to be a picture of baptism. What they do just before that? They painted the doorposts of their heart in the blood of the lamb, Passover lamb, and they began their new life in Christ. Um, not in Christ, excuse me. Um, kind of. Foreshadowing Christ. Um, but they began their new life. They were dressed for a journey because it was not a one-moment decision. It was you're stepping out in faith to follow God. And they went out. They went through the Red Sea, which is a picture of baptism. And then they went into the wilderness headed for the, um, the promised land. It's all given as an example for us. It's also given as a picture of salvation, baptism, journey through life, and hoping for that eternity in heaven. It's a picture that we're meant to see. Um, and it's a picture that Jesus' his own life mimics. So you get Israel going down into the Red Sea and back out of the baptism. You get Jesus coming down and being baptized in the Jordan. Um, the Spirit comes down upon Jesus, just like the Spirit came down, or the Shekinah glory came down to lead Israel again and again, whether that was a flaming pillar of fire during the night and cloud during the day. Uh, then you get the temptation in the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness how long? 40 years. Being tempted by Satan, being tested by God, failing again and again and again and again. Uh, while they were wandering in the wilderness, uh, Moses did go up on the Mount, Mount Sinai. It says that he didn't take bread or water for 40 days or 40 nights and received the Ten Commandments. Um, that is a miraculous fast. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but Jesus, we see doing the same thing in our passage. The only other person who did it was Elijah. Um, he ate some food, commanded by God to take some food. And then he got up and he did a 40-day journey on the strength of that food, the passage says, to Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. Um, so two men, Moses and Elijah, same mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And here you have Jesus doing it again, doing it better. And then you have Jesus, by the way, on chapter 5. I'm all over the place. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll get it in here. Um, on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, right after this temptation, he's going to go up on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's going to outline what it means, what his kingdom looks like, and what the characteristics are of his kingdom. Just as Moses was on his mountain receiving the law, Jesus is on his mountain dispensing the characteristics of the kingdom. You are supposed to see the parallels. You are supposed to see that Jesus is a better Moses. 
you are supposed to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament has been pointing to. That is what Matthew's driving at. That is what he's doing with this passage. Now zoom in, come out of the 10,000 foot view and come down into our passage. <clears throat> then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is right after he's been baptized. Led into the wilderness in order, sorry I added that, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. <clears throat> I do have just the slightest cough still. <clears throat> so, excuse me if I clear my throat overly much. All right, so then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is God's plan. The temptation of Jesus is no surprise. It's been part of the plan. The Spirit leads him up. Uh, we know from James, let no man say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he tempts no man. Um, but he does test us, and he uses the temptations of Satan to do it. So you have the Spirit leading Jesus to be tested or approved, affirmed by his passing that test while Satan is simultaneously trying to lure him to do evil. God lures no man to do evil, is what James means. Um, but God does take us through tests in order to prove us. So Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert, to be tempted by the devil, the accuser. And our passage here in Matthew says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, clearly. He was hungry. Um, do you know, guys know the rule of threes? We take the boys out in survival hike and other hikes, um, and we talk about the rule of threes for survival. Um, you have three minutes to survive without oxygen, and then you die. You have three days to survive without water before you die. You have three weeks to survive without food, and then you die. Um, so three weeks is 21 days. Jesus took no bread or water. We're talking about a miraculous fast. You don't live 40 days without God miraculously sustaining you. Uh, so Moses, Elijah, Jesus here, uh, miraculously sustained by the Spirit. Um, our passage says after fasting he was hungry, and that's when the tempter came. Mark and Luke don't put as much emphasis on it happening. Well, they, they talk about while fasting, he was tempted. Um, and then they talk about these temptations. Luke talks about these temptations. 
So whether they began while he was still fasting or whether there were other temptations going on before these three highlighted ones, we don't know. Um, the, the passages seem to leave room for there being more temptations, and these are the three that are highlighted. Um, they may have also started before he was done fasting, as you can see from the nature of the first temptation. The tempter came, and he said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, uh, which um, in Greek you can tell if the if is more like an, well, if you are, or if it's more like a since you are. Um, those are conditional sentences, and uh, I do not remember my Greek well enough to know which is which, but William McDonald told me that it's, uh, that it's the second. It's since you are the Son of God, um, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan doesn't doubt. Satan doesn't not believe Jesus is who he has been proclaimed to be. Um, but he is trying to lure him to evil. He's trying to lure him to uh, miss the mark. Uh, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It may be significant. A lot of, a lot of uh, theologians and exegetes point to the fact that John had just said to the Pharisees, God can raise up these stones to become sons of Abraham if he wants to. And then here we have Satan right after that talking about, well, if you're the Son of God, then surely you can make these stones into bread. Um, not a lot of significance to it. It just got pointed out a lot in the commentaries. Um, these stones become loaves of bread. Um, is there anything wrong with that? Would there be anything wrong with Jesus commanding stones to become bread to nourish himself? Uh, if he was still fasting, definitely. He's there for a 40-day fast, so it's cutting the fast short. Uh, it says after he was done fasting, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said, turn it into bread. Couldn't he have broken his fast that way if he wanted to, if God so directed him? Um, so maybe it was during the fast still, and that's why it was a temptation. Uh, but maybe it's just the source of, of whose suggestion it is. Um, let's, let's not take the suggestions of Satan, even if it sounds like, ah, what could it hurt? Um, Jesus' answer is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, here you can see, it could be uh, that he is choosing the nourishment of the word of God over and above the nourishment we need to live. That he is choosing to pursue God over life. That's where McDonald goes with it. Um, Jesus is kind of spurning life and the needs of life and saying, I choose the kingdom. And he is doing that. Um, but you have other passages like uh, John 4, 34, where Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's already surviving twice as long as he ought to on this fast. As he seeks to accomplish God's work, God is miraculously sustaining him. Um, Jesus is pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things are being added unto him. Not literal physical food, but the nourishment of it. God is sustaining him. I'm not daring you to try the same thing. Uh, but we are to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. It is what we are to be about. That is the driving motivation and purpose of your life. If it's anything else, you're wrong. If it's anything else, you're missing the mark. If it's anything else, you're not pursuing Jesus the way he's calling you to pursue him. 
are to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness and let him take care of our health and wealth and food and luxuries and freedoms. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' quote is pointing to Deuteronomy, which I didn't write down, apparently. Nope, that's the wrong, that's the next one. It's not pointing to Deuteronomy. It's pointing right back to Exodus 16. Um, this is where Israel has been saved from Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. Whoop, God is great, right? Nope, nope, God is being grumbled against. Uh, we're hungry. We miss what we had in Egypt. What are you doing? Woe is me. Um, and they're complaining to Moses, we, we, want, some, we want some food. Um, and that's when God initiates the manna, according to Exodus. So uh, that's when God puts, lays down the manna. He also sends the quail that night, and they feast on meat that night, and then they have manna in the morning. And God gives them a, uh, a test there. The test is only gather enough to feed your family that day going to spoil later in the day don't worry about it and then on the seventh day don't you're not going to gather anything because you're going to have gathered double on the sixth day and they failed every day people were gathering too much food and it was rotting and it was making the entire camp stink comes day six everybody gathers and hey it's not rotting hallelujah but it's not enough for them they want more they head back out on day seven to gather more manna they fail god's test god is providing miraculously and they fail to keep a hold of just the, the slightest little details that he insists upon. Um, you are also supposed to see Adam and Eve in this. You're also supposed to go back to the garden and see their temptation as they looked upon the fruit and are tempted by the devil. The first Adam failed. The last Adam will not. Watch this last Adam succeed, this last Adam in whom we dwell. Um, Jesus completes not only what Israel was supposed to, but what mankind supposed to complete. Um, this also lines up with 1 John 2, 16, of course. Um, the lust of the flesh is where you're seeing here, that desire to fill himself and satisfy his flesh uh, when God says um, not to desire the things of the world uh, in 1 John 2, 16. And, um, all three of the pieces in 1 John 2, 16, did I say 3, 16? Are going to show up here. Um, the second temptation then the devil took him to the holy city, which would be Jerusalem, and set him on, the ESV says pinnacle, uh, it's apparently supposed to be more like the portico, the pinnacle is not the highest part of the temple, um, it's not super important. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, since, or if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, hot topic here. Um, Jesus quotes scripture three times here to deny three temptations. Um, beware that you don't take that to mean that you can sling scripture around any way you want to, to justify your actions and uh, confirm your own beliefs. Um, let scripture do what scripture's meant to do, uh, because when we use it and twist it to do what we want it to do, you end up in Satan's camp. Uh, where he takes Psalm 91 here and quotes it uh, in order to encourage Jesus. Come on, throw yourself off the temple. The angels will pick you up. It says it according to Psalm 91. That's about you, the Messiah. Let's do it. Why not? Um, 
Scripture's not written, just as an aside, Scripture's not written to be a spell book full of neat little spells that you get to sling around for whatever. The, the Word of God gets at the will of God. It gets after the heart of God. So you need to be looking to see how is the Word teaching me about who God is and what He wants. Uh, not using it to justify or excuse or confirm um, things that Scripture's not interested in talking about or Scripture's interested in speaking against and you're just taking your favorite passage. It's also not the magic eight ball. God, what do you want from me today? I love the joke. Uh, what do you open up to? It's like one of the Gospels and it says Judas went out and hanged himself. You go a little later and it says go and do likewise. Uh, it's not a magic eight ball. It's not a spell book. It is the word of God teaching us about the will of God, teaching us who he is and what he loves and what he hates. So as Jesus uses these verses, he's using it uh, to confirm his faith and his desire to pursue God like crazy. He's using it to show that God is worthy of his trust. Satan uses it to say, hey, let's, let's do something fancy here. And what is Satan doing here? Um, Psalm 91 is about the Messiah, I believe. Um, it does talk about him being administered to by angels and then bearing him up and preventing harm. Jewish literature later took Psalm 91 and amplified it, and they used that to, to teach that the Messiah would descend, being held up from angels. When he comes, he's going to come in the clouds in glory, and he's going to settle on the temple, and he's going to begin his reign, his rule. So you have this majestic picture of the Messiah, which is what basically every Jew was expecting in Jesus' day. They were expecting the Messiah to come with his rule. And Satan is saying, hey, come like that. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to drink the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath. Why don't you just do this awesome, throw yourself from the temple, angels will show up, everybody will be like, whoa, it's the Messiah. And, and he's very subtly dangling this out there can take glory now. You don't, you don't need to go through the, the means of the cross. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they'll bear you up. And you won't strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus' response is, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not test the Lord. I, I wrestled with this one. He's directly quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which is from the great Shema, um, that says not to test the Lord. But it says it kind of like out of context. You don't really know what it's saying based on just you shall not test the Lord. Um, so it's like, is this like Gideon and the fleece where you put out the fleece and you say, God, I'll do it if you do this. Oh, well, you did it, but now I'll do it if you do this. Oh, okay, maybe it is your will. Um, is that the kind of testing they're talking about? That's kind of what this feels like, throwing yourself in a dangerous situation off of a building and, and forcing God to either show up or not show up. Um, but Deuteronomy 6.16 is referencing Exodus 17. It, it, it directly references this event in Exodus 17, where Israel, 16, in chapter 16, they just complained about food and they got it. Now, they're, now they complain about water in Exodus 17. More, more failures on their part. Um, God, why did you bring us out of there, out of Egypt, and you're just going to, now we can't drink anything and we're going to die. And Moses is saying, why are you testing the Lord? Um, but it specifically says that they ask, right at the end, it says, they test the Lord, asking, is the Lord among us or not? I think that's the test. The Israelites are saying, come on, you brought us out here, is he even with us? Does he even care about us? 
And that's the test. And that's what Satan is also tempting Jesus to do. And Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't need to ask that question. I know my Father's with me. I know my Father's will, and I'm in my Father's will, and I'm pursuing him in it. I don't need to ask the question and put God to the test. I don't need to demand that he show up in some miraculous intervention just to make me feel like he's present. I know my God is there, and I don't need fireworks to prove it. The next temptation, oh, that's the pride of life, by the way. 1 John 2.16, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We've done lust of the flesh, lust of eat, the pride of life, the theologians tie to this one. Um, because it's talking about coming in some like spectacular way, showing up with angels, bearing you up, and hey, look at me, I'm the Messiah. That pride of life, wanting all to look at me. Uh, but here in the third temptation, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Most theologians believe this is a vision. Um, they're not zipping around, teleporting to the top of the temple. They're not hiking up a mountain when Jesus is 40 days without food. God could sustain him to do that, sure. Um, Satan doesn't have the ability to bring every kingdom in time before Jesus. He's not, not powerful like that. Um, so it's, it's probably a vision. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will but fall down and worship me. Can he offer that? Uh, he's the prince of the power of the air. The prince of this, the god of this age, according to 2 Corinthians 4. Satan is the, the prince of the power of the air, is Ephesians 2. Jesus calls him the ruler or prince of this world in John 12, John 14, and John 16. Um, he's the ruler of the fallen order of things. But don't mix that up. It is God who raises rulers up to put them in charge. It's God who tears them down. He raises governments and drops them. Um, god is still the ruler of it all. But Satan has a level of ownership over his fallen, over the fallen order of this world. Um, but Jesus doesn't question that. Satan's over here offering, you can have it all. Again, it's a shortcut temptation. You can be the ruler, the Messiah that you came to be, the kingdom, the king over the kingdom. You can avoid the suffering of the cross. You don't have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. If but worship me. That one seems like a no-brainer. Be gone, Satan, for it is also written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is another quote from the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Be gone, Satan. I'm not bowing to you. Jesus chose the path to suffering. He chose the cup of grief chose the delay of the coming of his kingdom. It's 1,991 no, 1 years since the death of Jesus. Uh, we're coming up on 2,000 year anniversary. We don't know if that's going to be 2030 or 2033 because you can't nail down the death of the year that Jesus died. But we're coming up on 2,000 years. He chose that delay. God and Christ, God and Jesus chose 2,000 years of the church age to pass, or 1,991 so far, at least. He chose the bubonic plague, the crusades, 
chose Hitler and the suffering of the Jews. He chose the path that would bring us to COVID, which sounds so minuscule in a list like that. He chose the path that brings us to an overreaching government. God has not lost control. God has not been caught by surprise. Suffering comes before glory. He promised you that. Jesus promised that you and I would suffer. He also promised that we would experience unbelievable glory in heaven with him. And even here, inexpressible, inexpressible joy, the ability to stand and, and rejoice in the face of fear, loss of liberties, and whatever else. There will come a day, we know there will come a day when we don't get to partake in the marketplace, when we don't get to partake in society unless we have some kind of mark that's described as the mark of the beast. Is it literally going to be the mark of the beast, literally 666? Who knows? It could absolutely be figurative language. It's apocalyptic literature. It uses figurative language all the time. But there will come a day where we won't get to be part of our society, part of our marketplace, because we won't bow to anybody but God. Is that today? I don't really think so. Is it a step in that direction? Absolutely. If some people are going to make that stand now, then they'll make that stand now. We'll love one another well. We'll lift one another up, and we'll bow to God alone. But we are going to suffer. The rapture may hit. Before we have to suffer like that, it may not. We don't know. We may have to go through a whole lot before glory. But we're not going to lose our cool, freak out, quiver in fear, backbite against each other constantly, and profane the name of Jesus Christ. We will worship our Savior. We will worship our God as Jesus chose the cup of suffering didn't take shortcuts. We will worship God. We will trust his plan and remember that we cannot do better. Not Nobody could have laid a better plan than what God has done. And whatever he has allowed, whatever he's doing, he's doing for the good of the church. For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we'll worship and praise him as Jesus does. The devil left him and behold, then the angels came and ministered to Jesus. Um, one of the other cool things Matthew's doing here that I have to mention, <clears throat> you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Bow to nobody but the Lord your God. Uh, seven different times in the book of Matthew, people bow to Jesus. Um, two of those occasions, they specifically bow and worship, one of those being the Magi in chapter two. But seven distinct times, people bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Matthew is saying, behold your God. Jesus, your Messiah. Pursue him, obey him, follow him. And today that following is in the face of COVID fears, forced vaccinations, whatever it is, losing your job because you don't want to get the vaccination, whatever it is, 
loved ones dying to COVID or something else, the fires. We can go on and on about the different ways you've suffered. If it's just the fat being shaved off the camel so it can pass through the needle, hallelujah. God is good. He knows what he's doing. Amen. Father, we love you. We praise you. God, just drill that into our hearts, God. We cannot be caught up in our fear and our trepidation. We do not walk with a spirit of fear, God, but we walk in faith. We walk trusting you, God, as you are a God that is worthy of our trust. You are a God that is good, that you faithfully show your loving kindness, Lord God. So we bow to you. We bow to your plan. We, We know that you are working out your will, Lord that it includes so much suffering. How many of the apostles lived a long age? God, we we know that following you means we're going to suffer, God, and we accept it, God. Right now, I speak for the congregation, God, and I challenge them to it, Lord. We accept the suffering on the way to glory, as Jesus did. Father, be praised. Jesus Christ, be praised. We love you.